Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and tonight we're diving back into a war that has touched all of our lives the Mexican drug war. It's the deaths behind so many parties across the length and breadth of North America, the sin behind the fun, the endless pain that birthed endless euphoria, an inverse pregnancy producing merely death. It's a war that lays bare all our true values, our real core beliefs. It's a war that shows us the true meaning of politics and pluralism. And it's a war with violence out of a Dario Argento film. I'm going to introduce you to the Pozolero, the stew maker, who liquidated bodies in large vats of bubbling hot acid. I'm going to tell you about Desena Guzman who turned an elite special forces squad into one of the most feared and dangerous cartels in the history of mankind. Today's show has crucifixions and decapitations, heads sewn onto soccer balls, and it all stems from you and me, from American and Canadian and even Australian drug users. You are the ultimate cause of it all. Without your money, the drug traffic would be a wrapper without a candy. You're the one who puts the product in the wrapper of death. I'm going to tell you the horror story behind some of your most fun nights. And it's about time someone did. But first, I've got to thank Ben for buying us around. If you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the make a donation button. But now, narco violence. On January 2nd, 2020, an amazing thing happened. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador admitted that a drug lord named Joaquin Guzman, also known as El Chapo, had the same amount of power and authority as the head of state. I quote, There was a time when Guzman had the same power or had the influence that the Mexican president had because there was a conspiracy and that made it difficult to punish those who committed crimes. End quote. Now how could a drug lord, a criminal, have the same amount of power as a democratically elected government? Because power doesn't flow from legality and norms, no matter how much our political science departments in the United States would like it to. Power comes from the ability to nullify the enemy. El Chapo was able to command officials to ignore the movements of his drugs, to not prosecute his assassins, to deliberately destroy evidence, and at the same time, to seek out and hinder his enemies. George W. Grayson called this dual sovereignty. In short, Guzman was sovereign. Sovereign is he who decides, said Carl Schmidt, and Schmidt was right. If you have a local school board and the state government is commanding the officials how to run it, you don't have power over your school. State officials do. And if you are the president of Mexico and you tell the head of your criminal investigations department, the Federal Investigative Agency, to find and prosecute El Chapo's drug trafficking web, and at one and the same time, El Chapo commands the head of the same criminal investigation department to not hinder his drug operations, and the criminal investigation's head obeys Chapo, then Chapo is sovereign. Chapo is boss. As one Mexican drug ballad said, Chapo is jefe de jefes, the boss of bosses. Put succinctly, the drug war in Mexico helps us pull back the fog of our biased educations, rooted in the presuppositions that men are basically good, and we live in a world controlled by rules, and it helps us to see the world as it really is, controlled by power, pure and simple. The concrete world of drug czars and frontline wars, not the world of wealthy American professors sitting in swivel chairs developing theories of international law at Harvard. 
And if you don't believe me, ask the millions of residents of Crimea who woke up one day and found they were living in Russia. Sovereign is he who decides. Thus it was, thus it is, thus it ever shall be. Incidentally, for you Christians out there, this is the political worldview of Jesus Christ. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Matthew 6, 24. For devout Christians, which means for millions of people across the world, pluralism doesn't exist. One value is always sovereign. One authority is always ultimate. The Mexican drug war is our case study tonight. Let's examine the truth written in blood. For months, I've researched the drug war in Mexico, followed its rabbit trails to the end of the rainbow, examined all the skeletons in the closet, and what I found unsettled me. The best overview I've seen about the conflict comes from Yiwan Grillo. So I'll just quote him. Quote, Anyone on the planet with half an eye on the TV knows there is an orgy of butchery in Mexico. The country is so deep in blood it is hard to shock anymore. Even the kidnapping and killing of nine policemen or a pile of craniums in a town plaza isn't big news. Only the most sensational atrocities now grab media attention. A grenade attack on a crowd of revelers celebrating Independence Day. The sewing of a murder victim's face onto a soccer ball. An old silver mine filled with 56 corpses, some of the victims thrown in alive. The kidnapping and shooting of 72 migrants, including a pregnant woman. Mexico reels from massacres comparable to brutal war crimes. The vast majority of murders are never solved. From 2006 to 2010, the Mexican drug war claimed a stunning 34,000 lives. To put things in perspective, the Rhodesian-Bush War, which took place over 14 years, claimed just 40,000. That statistic is enough for everyone to realize this is a serious conflict, with more casualties than many declared wars. Another hard fact is the number of officials who have been murdered. In this four-year period, cartel gunmen slayed more than 2,500 public servants, including 2,200 policemen, 200 soldiers, judges, mayors, the leader of a state legislature, and dozens of federal officers. Such a murder rate compares to the most lethal insurgent forces in the world, certainly more deadly than Hamas or the Irish Republican Army." End quote. Now, I like the way Griot characterizes this conflict. For much of the war we're going to recount tonight, there are no front lines, just destabilized areas, a classic stage one guerrilla environment. However, in later years, the various cartels we will meet tonight actually took control of whole institutions and regions, ranging in size from major ports to small towns to prisons. This is more than just crime. Whole industries are forced to pay kickbacks to cartels in order to use the port facilities they control in order for normal, legal industries to send iron ore to China, for example. They have to pay a, quote, security fee to a cartel. But before we get into the trees of the conflict, I want to look at the forest. I need to tell you at the outset that there are scores of defunct and active cartels and smaller cartel-affiliated gangs operating throughout the events I'm going to describe today. It would take six months to dissect each gang and larger syndicate in detail, so I'm not going to do it. We will cover the major players, but I want you to realize that even as I describe the activities of the largest actors, 
There is a hive of activity continuously buzzing by contractual and bit-time players in the background of these events. They are constantly active, operating under the radar, the way an air conditioning system operates without you even thinking about it, unless there is a major problem. At the same time, this isn't and never will be just a podcast about numbers and hand-wringing. We always try to relate the real-world effects and the implications of the conflicts we discuss. However, I want to give you some numbers just so you get a feel for the scale of the warfare we are discussing today. So here's the picture of the forest, the view from above. Now, Mexico isn't like many of the countries that frequently deal with insurgencies. The Mexican economy is a trillion-dollar market where a quarter of young people attend university. In 2009, the illegal narcotics industry accounted for approximately $30 billion every year. In comparison, Mexico's other major sources of foreign currency are oil, which in 2009 was worth $36.1 billion, and remittances sent from Mexican workers, which was worth another $21.1 billion. Foreign tourism brought in $11.3 billion. So, of the four major sources of foreign currency in Mexico, the drug traffic was second, and a close second at that. And if you include the widespread extortion, which cartels regularly subject the legal economy to, then the drug syndicates are the largest source of foreign currency in Mexico. The drug economy employs more people than tourism, and it is certainly the second most productive industry in all of Mexico. It may be even the first. In 2005, Mexico saw 1,500 human beings murdered as a direct result of drug violence, and the numbers have just grown from there. The pattern really resembles the way the S&P 500 grows over time. There's dips and falls, but the overall trend is always upwards. And in 2006, 2,000 people were murdered. In 2007, 2,400 people were murdered. In 2008, there were about 6,000 murders. In 2010, 15,000 people were butchered so Americans could shove dope in their noses and needles in their veins for parties and to impress women and for naked, self-interested pleasure. At the same time, Ciudad Juarez, just seven miles from the United States border, became the most violent city in the world. In fact, according to Justice in Mexico, approximately 40% of all 2018 homicides in Mexico were related to drug trafficking. But don't take my word for it. Here's how Laura Calderon describes the years from 2006 to 2012. Quote, all told, there were 121,669 homicides in this time period, an average of over 20,000 people per year, more than 55 people per day, or just over two people every hour, end quote. The majority of these murders were committed to support the 22 million Americans who use illegal drugs. And if we take a conservative estimate of the number of deaths attributed to narcotics violence and divide it by the 22 million American drug users during the same period, we see that for every 360 United States narcotic consumers, there was one murder in Mexico. But the figures are even more frightening. If we take out the 18 million marijuana consumers, there are approximately 4 million Americans who regularly abuse hardcore drugs like heroin and methamphetamines. This means for every 65 users of hardcore narcotics, 
There was one homicide from 2006 to 2012, and the killing continues. Every day, the odds of drug consumers unsuspectingly causing a death in Mexico increases. Now, it's true. These figures I've just given you are rough estimates, and by themselves, they present a strong argument for the legalization of marijuana. But the point here is drug consumption is killing real people. It's widowing wives, it's making orphans of Mexican children, forcing them to fend for themselves in an uncaring and hard world. Moreover, this figure doesn't include the much larger number of Mexicans who were intimidated, afraid, beaten, robbed, and abjectly abused so Americans could kill themselves overdosing on drugs every year. If you include these figures, the direct impact of drug consumption on violent crime in Mexico is multiplied. And some of you listening to this smirked when I told you this. Smirked at death and smirked at fatherless children. Smirked as kids in a neighboring country are afraid to play on the street for fear of the drug violence. Smirking people like you cause! And if it was your little sister or your little brother, you wouldn't be smirking. You'd have tears in your eyes like I do because it was my brother. And every time I see a smirk, it chokes my soul and clouds my vision with tears. I know a lot of you are thinking, we should just legalize drugs and there will be no reason for murder and criminality. That's besides the point. The point is drug users knowingly take drugs even though they are illegal right now. They don't care about the consequences for their own bodies, their own families, let alone strangers in Mexico. Homo homini lupus. Man is a wolf to man. Things have only gotten worse. In 2018, there were 33,341 homicides in Mexico. 13,336 of those were a direct result of the drug trade, according to conservative estimates. Others estimate 22,338 of the deaths were the results of narcotics traffic. At the same time, there were approximately 70,237 overdose deaths in the United States in 2018. And as far as money goes, the United States has spent over $1 trillion since 1971 combating the narcotics trade. To put these numbers in perspective, 4,435 Americans died in the American Revolution and 46,000 Americans died during the three years of the Korean War. My point is these are huge figures we're dealing with in the Mexican drug war. Now listen to those numbers because I'm about to put a broken, shattered, tortured human face on them and then I want you to second guess your professors and unthinking politicians when they tell you that man is basically good. The ongoing drug war in Mexico began after the end of one of the largest periods of economic growth in Mexican history. In the late 1980s, trade between the United States and Mexico accounted for just $49 billion. In 2000, it was at $247 billion. Mexicans flocked from country shacks to work in assembly plants along the border. Throughout the 90s, Tijuana and Juarez grew by a block a day, with new slums spreading over surrounding hills, slums that would later be the center of the drug war. The massive increase in trade was creating a huge Mexican middle class and working class, but it was also creating a new drug market and a human ocean in which the drug cartels could swim. Wherever there is a mass of people, there is a camouflage for the guerrilla and for the criminal too. In the late 90s, large numbers of Mexicans began using hard drugs for the first time. Suddenly, there was an incentive to control drug markets within Mexico itself, another inducement for violence. But the bottom fell out. Yiwan Grillo picks up the story. Quote, 
1995, money poured out of the economy and the peso fell like a dead weight, triggering double-digit inflation. The middle class had their life savings wiped out, while many companies went out of business, costing millions of jobs. Bill Clinton, who had worked closely with the Mexican president, rushed to the rescue with a $50 billion bailout package to save Mexico from collapse. This crisis sparked a surge in crime. Despite the steady rise of drug trafficking, modern Mexico had not been a dangerous country until then. Even in the 80s, muggings and robberies were relatively low, and Mexicans strolled the streets of big cities at all hours. But those good old days came to a rude end. Mugging, carjacking, and the heinous crime of kidnapping shot up, especially in the capital. Suddenly, everyone in Mexico City had a story about a family member getting a gun stuck to his head and turning out his pockets. Police failed to respond to this crime wave, creating an atmosphere of impunity. Drug trafficking kept bringing in the billions, and as it got paid in dollars, the devaluation of the peso just gave El Narco more power. End quote. After the economic crisis, many newly urbanized people were broke. They had bills to pay and children to feed. The countryside could not support them. In the cities, there were no jobs. The government wasn't offering anything to the slums. But there was another actor who was the cartels. That's when the cartels stepped into the breach. There was a pool of desperate and willing workers for the burgeoning criminal enterprises, and the rot spread throughout the slums like milk saturating a bowl of Rice Krispies. Here it pop. And an army of criminals started to surround the glittering new Mexican cities. And the rot had a source, the Sierra Madre Mountains. For over a hundred years, this key area has supplied the majority of illegal substances produced in Mexico, marijuana, cocaine, alcohol during Prohibition, stretching back for decades. The mountains are 932 miles from the Arizona border and spiral throughout the Mexican states of Sonora, Sinaloa, Durango, and Chihuahua. This area is known as the Golden Triangle because of all the drugs it produces. Every day, Mexican soldiers fly over this region in helicopters looking for drugs. Every day, they find crops and burn them. Every day, vastly more crops are grown than are burned, destined for the noses and lungs of addicts throughout Mexico, Canada, and the United States. Did you ever wonder where that opioid that killed your friend came from? It's a good bet it came from the Golden Triangle. One corner of the triangle is in the Mexican state of Sinaloa. This is where the term cartel originated. Sinaloa is the birthplace of Mexico's oldest and most powerful network of traffickers, known as the Sinaloa Cartel. This cartel has gone by many names, but they all mean the same thing. A journalist gives an explanation this way, quote, all these names are just approximations to describe a quarrelsome empire of traffickers that spans out from Sinaloa across half the U.S. border, end quote. So the heart of trafficking is Sinaloa, but the arteries are the U.S.-Mexican border. One of the longest borders on the planet, stretching 2,000 miles from San Diego, California to Brownsville, Texas. But this border isn't just a line. It's marked by dozens of medium and large towns and cities with traffic that produces billions of dollars in income for American workers and companies. It's a sea where the narco fish can swim. Trafficking across the border has been a problem for more than a century. The traffic is almost certain to remain a problem for the next century. By the late 90s and into the early 2000s, violence was equaling and sometimes even exceeding some of the worst cities in the United States. Again, Yuan Grillo explains, quote, 
The spread of these drugs was directly linked to the traffic. To maximize profits, Mexican capos started paying their lieutenants with bricks of cocaine and bags of heroin, as well as cash. Many of these mid-ranking hoods unloaded their products on Mexico's own streets to make a quick peso. Tijuana developed the highest level of drug use in the country, with cartel affiliates setting up hundreds of little drug shops, especially in the center and east side slum. The cartel's mob of hitmen protected these drug retailers, adding an extra dimension to Mexican drug violence. Now it wasn't just about moving tons over the border. It was also about slinging crack to addicts in the streets of Mexico. Fighting over the street corners drove violence to new highs with some 300 homicides a year in Tijuana and the same number in Juarez towards the end of the 90s, end quote. The drug war started in the mid-2000s, right around 2004. That's when violence exploded across the country. And here a modern journalist describes the first wave of warlike violence like this, quote, Serious cartel warfare began in the fall of 2004 on the border with Texas and spread across the country. When President Felipe Calderon took power in 2006 and declared war on these gangs, the violence multiplied exponentially. The president threw the entire military out to restore order, but rather than falling into line, gangsters actually took on the government." End quote. Another journalist who left Mexico in 2004 and returned in 2008 explains the palatable change he experienced when he returned in 2008. Quote, I left in 2004, and as it turned out, just a year before Mexico's long-running trouble with drug gangs took a dark new turn for the worse. Monterey was the safest region in the country when I lived there, thanks to its robust economy and the sturdy social control of an industrial elite. There were only about a thousand drug-related killings annually. The Mexico I returned to in 2008 would end that year with a body count of more than 5,300 dead. That's almost double the death toll from the year before, and more than all the U.S. troops killed in Iraq since that war began. But it wasn't just the amount of killing that shocked me. When I lived in Mexico, the occasional gang member would turn up executed, maybe with duct-taped hands, rolled in a carpet, and dropped in some alley. But Mexico's newspapers itemized a different kind of slaughter in the August that I returned. 24 of the week's 167 dead were cops. 21 were decapitated, and 30 showed signs of human torture. Campesinos found a pile of 12 more headless bodies in the Yucatan. Four more decapitated corpses were found in Tijuana, the same city where barrels of acid containing human remains were later placed in front of a seafood restaurant with a sign that said, Catch of the Day. A couple of weeks later, someone threw two hand grenades into an Independence Day celebration, killing eight and injuring dozens more. And at any time, you can find YouTube videos of Mexican gangs executing their rivals. An eerie reminder of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Then there are the guns. When I lived in Mexico, its cartels were content with assault rifles and large caliber pistols. Now Mexican authorities are finding arsenals that would have been incomprehensible in the Mexico I knew just a few years before. The former U.S. drug czar General Barry McCaffrey was in Mexico in 2007, and this is what he found. Quote, 
The outgunned Mexican law enforcement authorities face armed criminal attacks from platoon-sized units employing night vision goggles, electronic intercept collection, encrypted communication, fairly sophisticated information operations, sea-going submersibles, helicopters, and modern transport aviation, automatic weapons, RPGs, anti-tank 66mm rockets, mines and booby traps, heavy machine guns, 50 caliber sniper rifles, massive use of military-grade hand grenades and 40 millimeter grenade machine guns, end quote. Mexico's surge in gang violence has been accompanied by a similar spike in kidnapping. This old problem, once confined to certain unstable regions, is now a nationwide crisis. All of this is taking a toll on Mexicans who have been insulated from the country's drug violence. Elites are retreating to bunkered lives behind video cameras and security gates. From 2004 to 2008, Mexico changed from a country with a serious drug problem to a country with a narco insurgency. I'm sure you're all wondering, why? Why did this happen? I was. The answer will surprise you. It was corruption. There wasn't enough of it. Before 2007, enough slices of pie were getting shared through corruption to contain serious violence. But in 2006, there was a change in government and reformists tried to end corruption and implement an authentic democracy in Mexico. What they got was a bloodbath. Yiwan Grillo describes the process, quote, In 1929, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, came to power in Mexico. They would remain in power for the next 70 years, surprisingly providing stability through corruption. The PRI system relied on corruption to keep ticking over smoothly. Businessmen could pay off small-town bosses, who could pay off governors, who could pay off the president, each man taking a cut along the way. Everyone was happy and stayed in line because everybody got paid. Corruption was not a rot, but rather the oil and glue of the machine. In this system, heroin money was just one more kickback flowing up. The drug market was a fraction of the size it is today when the system formed and nobody thought it was a big deal, end quote. The mustard seed is the smallest seed, but the tree it produces is one of the largest. Such is the way the seed of the drug trade sprouted throughout the quaint neighborhood streets of small-town USA. And if the corruption inherent in Mexican politics was the seed of the drug war, the fertilizer was the revolution in values across 1960s America. It definitely moved the drug trade from a small business into a multi-billion dollar global market. One journalist takes up the story, quote, The meteoric rise of American drug taking in the 1960s and 1970s had dramatic impacts on Mexico. Within a decade, Recreational drugs became a global commodity. In Mexico, the surge in demand transformed drug producers from a few Sinaloan peasants to a national industry in a dozen states. The government had to respond to a much more widespread flouting of the law, but the politicians were willing to accommodate the trade because it brought so much money to them. It was the peace-yelling, demonstrating, free-loving hippies and yuppies who spread corruption and death throughout Mexico. Where were the protests then? Who was burning their bras for the normal people of Mexico? Nobody. End quote. Now the mustard sprout had already turned into a giant tree, and then it began to spread itself across the continent. Roots and branches worming through the main interstates and highways of North America and into the bongs and cocaine lines of major cities and small towns across Canada 
and the United States. I want to be clear about this. The hippie revolution, the me generation, the selfish pursuit of pleasure, and the so-called peace movement gave birth to the drug trade and ultimately the drug violence. Let me be forthright. U.S. drug consumption is the main driver of narco violence. The numbers prove the theory. In 1966, the United States heroin market was $600 million a year. By 1980, a period of just 14 years, the market was worth over $100 billion with a B dollars a year. This is the kind of money that gets people killed, that hollows out democracy and leaves it an empty husk. The sign on the door still says democracy, but really it's just another tyranny. Now all of this exponential increase in drug use and traffic led to the creation in 1973 of the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, an agency whose entire mission was to fight the war on drugs. In the early 70s, the agency had 1,470 special agents and a budget of about $75 million. Today, it has over 5,300 agents, offices in 63 countries, and a massive budget of more than $2.3 billion. I want to stop right there. The DEA has offices in 63 countries. This is what French commentators mean when they talk about the American empire. America has combat troops, spies, offices everywhere. Often, they're not even hidden. Many of you listening are Americans. You're living in an empire, and many of you never even knew it. The DEA is one of the faces of the empire, and many of you never even vote. There are people's lives at stake. Even if voting had only a 5% chance of making a difference in the world, you owe it to your own conscience to vote and roll the dice on the 5% chance. I'm not a fool. I know voting often will not make a difference to American political life. I know that. However, if just a few million people registered protest votes, it could rock the establishment, make them a little less sure of themselves. Maybe they wouldn't want to start another war in some small country most Americans have never heard of. Even if your vote isn't going to make a difference, do it anyways. Just to send a message, just to look in the mirror and lift your chin a little bit higher, man. Anyways, in the 1980s, conglomerates of drug trafficking networks spread like the human circulatory system throughout the North American continent. Three major cartels emerged. The cartels even had a godfather movie-like meeting in a remote resort and resolved their differences in order to make the narcotics trade run more smoothly. The three cartels were based in three different areas, Tijuana, Juarez, and the Gulf region. Now, these cartels still clashed during this time. It wasn't Cartel Gilmore Girls. But the violence was contained. You didn't see military-grade hardware involved, and you didn't have many innocent civilians getting hurt. Still, in the 90s, these cartels expanded. Just like big corporations in modern capitalism, they used their vast profits to expand their empires and eat up small competitors. If you remember from a previous episode, I used the example of Walmart to describe this process. We are all living under a few vast pyramids. And if the pinnacles of those pyramids decide to do something, there's not much we can do about it. That's the world we live in. So to make a long story short, Mexican drug trafficking spread like a virus, bringing in more and more money. But the PRI, the party in power for over 70 years I told you about in Mexico, kept a lid on crime through corruption. There were ups and downs in the traffic. If you look at graphs, it looks like a graph of the stock market. But over time, the market kept growing. Then the bottom fell out. The PRI lost power. A new president took control, one who didn't just wink at the endemic corruption throughout Mexico, but set out to stop it. 
The political will to stamp out corruption didn't come all at once. After a jarring peso crisis in the mid-90s, a crisis where a majority of middle-class Mexicans had their life savings completely wiped out, the PRI began to slowly lose power. First, it lost control of large local cities and state governments. Then, in 1997, the party lost control of the parliament. Each loss of control by PRI led to problems in the drug underworld. Still, the political changes in the late 90s did not lead to widespread violence, and this is due to the new president, Vincente Fox. Fox was a Coca-Cola executive who was more interested in attending multinational parties than dealing with an insoluble drug problem. But what he did do was remove key PRI players from power, players who were already corrupt, but who also were able to rein in the excesses of the cartels. They could say no to them every now and then. With the PRI out of office, the basic system of power was gone. Key cartel bosses began to place abjectly loyal stooges in political offices throughout the country, men who would never dare to say no to the cartels. Then the unthinkable became thinkable. Military-style conflict broke out. Historian Brian Hamnett explains, quote, In the early 2000s, three cartels began a bloody struggle for total supremacy. The Cartel de Tijuana, under the Ariano Felix brothers. The Cartel de Sinaloa, headed by El Chapo Guzman, and the Ciudad Juarez gang, end quote. Now, one of the most effective drug bosses at this time was Chapo Guzman, known as El Chapo. Chapo was so well-connected, he was able to just walk out of prison. I mean this literally. Not only did the guards not stop him, they actually helped him escape. In return, the drug kingpin paid for the medical surgery of one of the guard's sons and set up another one with a beautiful girlfriend. He also gave the guards a liberal amount of money. El Chapo ran the Sinaloa cartel for years, producing its own marijuana, heroin, and methamphetamine. The cartel imported chemical precursors used to make meth from Asian countries such as India, Thailand, and China. Sinaloa cartel operatives and scouts spread to every continent. Even the Australian authorities determined the cartel was responsible for delivering as much as 500 kilograms of cocaine a month to Australia's shores. This is the moment. Many commentators say the narcotics trade turned into an insurgency. It began small, certainly compared to modern conflict raging across Mexico, but it had a warlike start nonetheless. A journalist takes up the story, quote, In the mid-sized border city of Nueva Laredo, where over 10,000 trucks and 2,000 rail cars passed on a daily basis, the new conflict began in 2004. It was a turf war. But it wasn't like street gangs in Chicago. The actors utilized unprecedented tactics. The use of paramilitary hit squads, widespread attacks on police, and mass kidnappings. These tactics spread across Mexico on a frightening scale, changing the way the conflict was fought. At the heart of the Nuevo Laredo battle was Mexico's most bloodthirsty gang, the Zetas. The former Special Forces soldiers militarized the conflict, turning it from a war on drugs into a drug war. Suddenly, the public saw criminals in combat uniforms with heavy weaponry. It was the start of something totally new. It was the start of the Mexican drug war, end quote. The Zetas are the ones who began the new style of narco-warfare. Originally a tight-knit paramilitary unit of deserters from the Mexican Army Special Forces, 
They eventually formed independent gangs consisting of perhaps thousands of members that have mushroomed throughout Mexico and Central America in recent years. The Zeta Gangs engage in the drug trade, human trafficking, and extortion. Anyone with a weapon, tattoos, and a crew cut can call himself a Zeta and immediately instill a sense of terror. The Zeta had their own modus operandi, a pattern they repeated in town after town across Central America. First, they enter a small town, behead a local business owner or two, and declare the territory theirs. If stupid locals are so criminally insane as to resist, then a few more are massacred. It was members of Los Zetas who indiscriminately massacred 72 migrants in August 2010. And it was members of Los Zetas who were responsible for the killing of a U.S. special forces agent in February 2011. And it was members of the Zetas who massacred five Sinaloan operators in a safe house in 2009. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. It was 1997 when the Zetas were formed. A former car thief named Osil Cardenas murdered his way to the top of the Gulf Cartel. A few months later, he befriended a special forces commander named Guzman de Sena, who was ironically supposed to be hunting and capturing Cardenas. Instead, they drank beer and ate huevos rancheros together. De Sena, the original Zeta, was a talented and aggressive officer. His code name was Z1, the first Zeta. He was from a small, poor village in southern Mexico, and he grew up in deep poverty. He joined the military to escape it, and because of his natural ability and character, DeSena joined the elite Air Mobile Special Forces Group, equivalent to the Green Berets in the United States. His unit received specialized training from hardcore special operators around the world, and DeSena was a good student. Now, DeSena was a key player in suppressing the Zapatista rebellion against Mexican governmental authority, learning key skills as he hunted and put down the ill-equipped and poorly trained rebels. And during one conflict with the Zapatista rebels, Guzman and his men tortured, maimed, and killed rebels who had surrendered. Their corpses were dumped on a riverbank, their ears and noses sliced from their faces, making their denuded visages resemble a cartoon smiley face. And after the conflict, DeSena was transferred to the United States border to hunt down drug traffickers. But Cardenas, the drug lord, wanted peace with the hardcore special forces operators, and he was willing to pay, and pay well to get it. Started with bribes, offerings for Guzman to look the other way during a certain time of day. And then one day, Guzman and many of his men left his barracks and never came back. They became full-time narco mercenaries. They became Los Zetas. Gulf Cartel boss Cardenas promptly paid DeSena to put up the most ferocious death squad in Mexican history, and DeSena was happy to comply. He recruited dozens of crack, highly skilled soldiers who formed the original core of the Zetas. Within months, DeSena commanded 40 highly trained special forces soldiers. A few years later, the Zetas controlled much of the eastern and southern drug trade. One journalist describes the early actions of the Zetas this way, quote, the Zetas recruited more soldiers as well as former police and gang members to fill their ranks. Pitched battles between soldiers and Zetas burst out on the streets. The Mexican army sent in reinforcements to capture Cardenas and encouraged them to shoot first and ask questions later. These tactics were successful in taking out DeSena. 
He was eating at a seafood restaurant in November 2002 when soldiers burst through the door in groups of two and they ran down the walls of the restaurants like a boss, going at right angles, obviously pros. Guzman reached for a pistol and tried to defend himself, but he didn't even get off one shot. Fifty bullets ventilated Guzman in the head, torso, arms, and legs. He was literally full of lead, end quote. But his creation continued after him. The Zetas lived on, becoming one of the most feared cartels in Mexico. The Gulf Cartel spent millions financing their training and growth across the region, but the Zetas were smart. They also started raising their own funds, becoming an independent force from the Gulf Cartel, but still in alliance with them. This same thing happened when the Duchy of Moscow slowly built up power to overthrow the Canaanite of Kazan. At first, the Zetas only taxed drug dealers and traffickers, but soon they had branched out and were taxing any business whatsoever. Efron Batista was a marijuana producer in the Sierra Madres. This is how he details the impact of the Zetas on the drug trade. Quote, There's never been fighting over marijuana in my city. If you wanted to grow weed, you just grew it and sold it in town to smugglers. Then the Zetas appeared and everything changed. Anyone who even looked like growing marijuana... They had to pay them off. People in my part of the mountains are rough, and a lot of them told the Zetas to piss off. That's when the bodies started appearing on the streets. The strongest among us were killed. The rest paid. So would you if you like breathing. End quote. The Zetas also recruited foreign military personnel. Some of their best came from Guatemala, former members of the elite Kabil commando. One journalist said the hardened Kabiles made the Mexican special forces look like the Boy Scouts. Their motto was directly derived from Italian fascism. If I retreat, kill me. The Kabiles massacred tens of thousands of rebels in Guatemala, and then they sold their hard-worn military skills to the Zetas, and the Zetas paid well. The Zetas broke all the rules. When the Sinaloans took over the petty drug traffic on one street corner in the northeast of Mexico, the Zetas left the new Sinaloan petty street slingers alone and drove hundreds of miles through the night into Sonora to kill the men who had sent them. Then they showed pictures of their bosses' dead bodies to the new petty dealers who went over to the Zetas or quit the business altogether. Such is the essence of power, the capacity to nullify the enemy. By 2006, the rising death toll caused concern among leaders across North and Central America, but still the violence continued. The cartels seemed to always be one step ahead of the authorities. And over time, many of the Zeta leaders were captured, but still the cartel's influence cancered across the nation. According to Brian Hamnett, large swaths of Mexico are effectively under the sole control of the Zetas. Their domination isn't even contested. This is what I'm talking about when I quote Carl Schmidt all the time. The Zetas are the ultimate sovereign in those areas. No one else can make important decisions. And this shows the true eternal nature of politics. Domination and sovereignty, not talk and luxury. Someone forward this podcast to our rulers in the Beltway. Now after DeSena was perforated by rifle fire, the Sinaloan Mafia thought the Gulf Cartel was finished. The Sinaloans already controlled the drug traffic from Juarez to the Pacific Ocean. Now they sought to expand their territory all the way to Texas. The Sinaloans thought it would be easy pickings with the Zetas in disarray. What they got was a festival of death. 
the Zetas weren't finished. The Zetas were just starting. This is the second stage of the drug war. When the Sinaloan cartel moved in on Zeta territory, that's when all hell broke loose. Blood rivered through the streets while academics waved charts at one another and counted statistics and drank $5 coffees at conferences surrounded by luxury and wondering how they were going to stop the drug war raging on the streets of Mexico. The only thing these experts were stopping was respect for American power. And at first, the Sinaloans tried to take over the Zetas' turf by taxing drug dealers and smugglers the way the Zetas had done for years. Some of the locals were sick of the militaristic Zetas, so they preferred the Sinaloan party boys, and they went over to the Sinaloan cartel. It was actually easier than they thought it was going to be. That's when the bottom dropped out from under them. The Zetas came in open combat like never before. Yiwan Grillo details the events in the mid-2000s, quote, Many of the Sinaloans' recruits were thugs from El Salvador and Honduras. The gangbangers had a fearsome reputation. But they were no match for the heavily armed and military-organized Zetas. Five cadavers of these Central American recruits were thrown on the floor of Nuevo Laredo safe houses. The Zetas had carved their bodies into modern art masterpieces. The human body reduced to its essential geometric shapes, a sort of hellish cubism. A note lay next to the corpses. To the bosses of the Sinaloans, send more pendejos like this for us to kill. The Zetas were striking terror on the Mexican streets. Many of the best gangs learned from them and started imitating their tactics. The rest were killed or disappeared. Only the strong survived. And in 2006, the Zetas started a new primordial practice. They began decapitating their enemies. It was their calling card. End quote. The new leader of the Zetas was Eriberto Lascano, also known as Z3, also known as the Executioner, a man of many names. He was a personal friend of Decena Guzman, the former leader who, if you remember, was executed while he was peeling shrimp, and so he added a quest for revenge to the bloody business of drug trafficking. If anything, Lascano was more ruthless than Guzman. For example, some guards at a prison refused to smuggle in luxuries to Zeta prisoners, so Lascano had six prison workers abducted. Ten hours after they were kidnapped, their bodies were found in the prison parking lot. They had all been shot in the head, execution style, and after that, luxuries flowed like water to the Zeta prisoners. Some even had women smuggled into them. Police had once bullied criminals into paying up, now the shoe was on the other foot. Meanwhile, as the two cartels made war on one another, the police were caught in the crossfire. Hundreds of policemen were ambushed, especially in the city of Nuevo Laredo. Mares were killed, some shot over 40 times, machine gun while cutting the rim at the new McDonald's. Corruption was rampant. Federal soldiers raided one police department of a major city and arrested the whole department, all 700 police officers. Afterwards, they were following up leads when they entered what they thought was a Zeta safe house, but what they found was an audio-visual tour through purgatory. Forty-four civilians were bound, gagged, obviously tortured, and bleeding. The prisoners said the city police had arrested them and then handed them over to the Zeta operatives. The safe house was a Zeta torture house, what the Chilean secret police called a laughter palace. In 2012, Zeta operatives, with the help of dozens of prison authorities, fomented one of the most violent prison riots in Mexican history. The Zetas first bludgeoned and then stabbed 48 members of the Gulf Cartel to death, and then 30 Zetas escaped from the prison, ready to spread love and progressive values across Mexico. 
Really, escape is the wrong term for what the Zetas did. They walked out the front door like a boss, like they owned it. And the sad truth is they did own that prison. Sovereign is he who decides. But Zeta influence doesn't stop at the border. The Zeta network operates throughout the United States in cities such as Dallas, Atlanta, Seattle, and San Diego. The Zetas have a long reach, and this is just one cartel. There are many more worming their way into the American apple. And it won't be long until they're walking your streets like a boss, vomiting a ride in the prison down the street from your house like they own it. I know some of you think it can't happen here. I've had acquaintances tell me as much over omelets at Waffle House. Friend, what's the greatest military in the world without the will to use it? What's the most sophisticated prison system without the values to keep murderers locked away? Do you think the police down the street from you don't like money? You think they won't take a few thousand dollars not to drive down a certain road at a certain time? In the book Power Lines by Jason Carter, grandson of former President Jimmy Carter, Jason admits he is scared and afraid when he accidentally gets off at the wrong exit on the interstate. He didn't get out and ask for help. The other was the boss on the street Jason found himself in on one lonely night. What's to stop those frightening streets from spreading to your house? Jacqueline Irving, an educational expert who has spent her entire life researching minority students, relates how many streets in cities like Atlanta are daymares. She writes, quote, Daymare places have scary effects. Poverty, violence, hunger, poor health, drug addiction, inferior schools, and privileged people who sigh in collective hopelessness and outrage, wondering where the children's absent father is and blaming young single mothers for having a baby whom she apparently can neither raise nor afford. End quote. One day the daymare spread across Mexico. And it can spread across Canada. It can spread across Sweden and Japan and the suburbs of Atlanta, too. The seed is already planted. All that it needs is the rain. And there's lots of rain on Netflix and down the street from the dope dealer and on Pornhub.com. The flood has already begun. So be not deceived. Or soever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Galatians chapter 6. And if you don't believe me, ask Iggy Azalea and her one billion listeners on YouTube. Yep, yep, you don't know the half. This shit get real. Valley girls giving blowjobs for Louboutins. What you call that? Head over heels. <laughs> no, 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 no money, no family. On December 11, 2006, Mexico's new president named Felipe Calderon declared war on the cartels who were themselves at war with one another. So a complex battle raged between the four sides, each cartel fighting against the other, while at the same time fighting against the government. It was a free-for-all death match. President Calderon's first strike was against a Zeta-affiliated gang. Think of these guys as Zeta's militia. Recently, they had killed a few citizens and decapitated a couple of journalists. Just another day for Zeta, but Calderon was pissed. In response, he sent 6,500 federal troops into the region where the decapitations happened. It was the first militarized strike of the new war by the government against the cartels, and Calderon poured more troops into other hot zones. Often, Calderon would not take control over a region. Instead, the region would simply be contested, caught in an endless tug-of-war of death. And the United States was there to help Calderon. 
America pledged $1.6 billion of military aid to Mexico, including Black Hawk and Bell helicopters, transport aircraft, and high-tech spy gear. And at first, Calderon's offensive achieved results. Federal troops nabbed $207 million of meth money. In October 2007, Mexican Marines seized a ship called Las Esmeralda. They inspected the ship but found nothing. However, one floorboard seemed loose to an inspector. Rapido! A key! Abajo! The inspector barked. The Marines lifted up a few floorboards and they found it. More drugs than appeared in the series Breaking Bad. Bricks of cocaine stacked from the floor to the ceiling. 23,562 of them. One of the largest drug busts in world history. The offensive was costing the cartels billions. It wasn't long before they struck back. Paradoxically, because of the government's success during 2006 and 2007, the cartels were forced to escalate the violence. 2008 would be the bloodiest year of the drug war up until that time. The cartels started hitting police and even petty officials everywhere. During one Independence Day celebration, a grenade attack left scores wounded. Hundreds of mayors, judges, and police officers were assassinated, many in their own homes. 80% of all killings took place in the Golden Triangle, the drug trade's heartland. It would take too long to recount all this violence. Most of it was on a small level. An assassination of a judge in his home, the killing of a police officer in an ambush, the torture of a drug dealer who didn't pay the Zetas on time. This liturgy of brutality, simply repeated every day like the endless, mindless repetition of a mid-level bureaucrat's career, every day was the same. That's what I want to emphasize. Between 2006 and 2010, the narco violence became routinized, just like the way you get up at the same time every day to go to work. Yiwan Grillo wrote this great summary of how the drug trade has operated for years, so I'll just go ahead and quote it. Quote, the Mexican army moves freely around the whole country, but then they can be attacked everywhere. They're not hit by aerial bombs or rockets, but by machine guns and grenades. One day, seven federal police were gunned down. The next day, 20 bodies piled up in Tijuana. And the next day after that, a commander was assassinated in his home in Mexico City. The journalists barely even reported on these crimes. The war was everywhere and nowhere. It was in the slums on the outskirts of the middle-class neighborhoods near the Central District. But it was in the neighborhoods of the rich, too, waiting to break down the hand-carved oaken doors of a wealthy businessman who didn't pay his cut to the Zetas on time. Everywhere and nowhere, immaterial, but still there like the Holy Ghost himself, end quote. That's the drug war we're talking about today. That's what goes on in Mexico as you hear my voice. That's why this podcast is so relevant today. Now, a lot of journalists and swivel chair writers will tell you there's no war in Mexico. Other writers and commentators say there is a war, so who is right? I'll let Jerry Langton, Laura Sanchez, and Malcolm Baith paint a picture of the violence that happened during a few weeks in the late 2000s, and I'll let you make up your own mind. Quote, in 2009, a man named El Pozolero, the stewmaker, was arrested and confessed to dissolving the remains of more than 300 people in vats of caustic soda for a drug kingpin. The first body was dissolved one night in 1996 in a drum with 200 liters of water. They undressed him, put him inside, turned on the gas burner, and left it there all night. It left the water thick with foam, Lopez said. We put the barrels in the pickup and took them to throw them away in the canyon. It was still dark when we threw them in. Three months later, I did it again. I told them I, I didn't want to do it anymore, Lopez added in a statement. 
but the money was too good, and the human dissolution continued. Years passed, and Lopez stuck with the job, and even taught the method to other people, the Sinaloan School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. In his statement, he explained that in one of the locations, he installed drainage where the dissolved human remains were dumped. It was the devil to move the human liquid mixture, because they weighed a lot. After everything was cleaned up, we stored barrels. We also washed the drain with hot water because the remains stuck to the pipes, clogging the hell out of them, he recalled. Meza Lopez said he worked in one human butchery lab for a year and a half, and military forces sometimes showed up but never found anything. He said the cartel brought more than 70 bodies to that site to dissolve them in the caustic soda. He described the human dissolution factory as a very rural place that was along the highway coming out of Tijuana. A path went up past the front of a gas station and led to a brick wall. That's where they would liquidate people. Sometimes the chickens would flip out as they worked. That always flipped out Lopez. Late in the same year, a man working for rivals of the powerful Sinaloa cartel was found. He was beheaded and his face was carved off and delicately stitched onto a football. Dozens of mass graves were discovered throughout Mexico in the same year. Videos of some of the atrocities have been disseminated over the internet. In the most recent one described above, members of the Sinaloa cartel are put to death, end quote. A few months later, the middle-class commuters in the city of Cuernavaca were driving happily along, humming to the radio, thinking about the big project they were going to work on, when suddenly all of that went out the window. Because thousands of commuters on Highway 95 looked up to see a medieval atrocity bursting forth into our own time, it was a masterpiece of horror. Jerry Langton paints the picture, quote, Early morning commuters came to a standstill when drivers discovered four nude, mutilated corpses hanging from an overpass. Their index fingers and genitals were found strewn across the roadside, and their heads were piled up against the stucco walls of the bridge supports. Propped against them was a handwritten cardboard sign that read, This is what will happen to all those who support the traitor Edgar Valdez Villarreal. It was signed CPS, which authorities said stood for Cartel Pacifico Sur. Later that day, police found a body in a car with Georgia license plates on Highway 200. The U.S. State Department said that the victim was a U.S. citizen from Georgia, but gave no other details about the person's identity or any possible connection with the drug trade. Two days later, soldiers at a routine checkpoint just outside the city of San Fernando saw a badly injured man in ragged clothes hobble out of the scrub. When he saw them, he started shouting, Ayuda! Ayuda! Help! Help! But his Spanish dialect was so thick, the guards had a hard time understanding what he was saying. He eventually communicated that he was an Ecuadorian who had paid some coyotes to sneak him into the United States. Once he paid, the coyotes took him into a ranch, took all of his money, and told him he had to work for a drug cartel before they would take him over to the Rio Grande. When he refused, they shot him and left him for dead. Once he was convinced they had left, he escaped. The man, an 18-year-old farmhand, said he was not the only one the kidnappers were holding. That's when the real funhouse tour began. An armed convoy was sent out to investigate. As soon as they were within sight of the ranch, the soldiers received assault rifle fire and grenade attacks. I want you to notice the cartel insurgents are using military-grade weaponry, including grenades. The resulting gunfight left one soldier dead and another severely injured. One cartel gunman was killed in the melee and another captured, but dozens managed to escape. Hundreds of rounds were fired. 
The overwhelming odor of the ranch gave away its purpose. Investigators found the bodies of 58 men and 14 women in a sloppy pile against the cinder block wall of a roofless building. They were stacked higher than Coriolanus could lift his lance to measure them all. Little or no attempt had been made to hide them. The bodies were dumped about the ranch and were not buried, said a military spokesman who refused to be identified. We're still investigating how long they've been there. Eventually, all 72 were determined to be illegal immigrants from Central and South America who were traveling through Mexico as a group. They carry fairly large amounts of cash with them in order to pay for the transport and every expense they need to reach the border, a Mexican immigration affairs analyst said of the immigrants who passed through Mexico. All the drug cartels operating in Mexico also have a role to play in the kidnappings of illegal immigrants and regular people. The next day, Mexican President Calderon addressed the incident on local radio. Yesterday's crime, for example, shows the cartel's beastliness, their brutality, and their absolute lack of human scruples, he said. I'm sure we will see a phase of very intense violence, principally among the cartels. That same month, a video circulated all over Mexican media. It shows four men being tortured and interrogated. The torturer asks one of the men, why'd you kill my brother? The man does not answer. Then a handgun comes into the picture and the man is shot in the head. Murder! And this was all over Mexican television that month, end quote. I want to stop right there. How many of you have seen the infamous picture of the South Vietnamese colonel executing a Viet Cong guerrilla during the Tet Offensive? The film and pictures from that one incident are iconic. It's on virtually every documentary about the Vietnam War. But the pictures from the drug war American drug consumption causes are never broadcast to us. Every sixth grader in America should see that video and should be told, this is what drug consumption does to people. It murders people. It's how the Spartans raise their children, cold and brutal truth. But we raise our kids to be individualistic creators, YouTube stars, drug consumers. Okay, you're thinking, those are some pretty big crimes, but they're still only crimes. Is this really an insurgency? Well, I can tell you that many of the first phases of the guerrilla war involves atrocities like these. The insurgent movement asserts authority over a village. If the village leaders complain, they are executed, and the insurgents reassert their authority. The same thing happened in Huey during the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. So yes, this does have many characteristics of an early insurgency. But let's hear a few more examples to prove it. In 2010, allegations arose that Valdez Villarreal also known as Barbie for his blonde hair and fair skin, actually controlled the airports of Cancun and Toluca, a city of a million residents, by bribing the top federal agents there. To gain access to the runways in Cancun, Barbie gave one official $65,000 in cash and a new BMW. And when it comes to concrete reality, on the ground, Barbie controlled the airport. His word was decisive. It doesn't matter how many Harvard professors theorize and write endless articles about how things should be. The concrete human reality keeps bursting forth in spite of mythologies created by men like John Rawls, who ought to know better. Our political science departments are clogged with theoreticians trying to make men better, trying to invent some system whereby they can impose their will on other men. They call the system reasonable. And so... They say all must comply, even when their reasonable systems contradict other reasonable theories, as Alistair McIntyre has unequivocally shown. Yet they keep writing their articles, and they keep wringing their hands and eating shrimp cocktails at fancy conferences hosted in beautiful wood-trimmed hotels. How do I know all this? Because I've been to them. 
I've eaten the shrimp cocktail. I've drank the Kool-Aid. I've choked on the shrimp and the blasé attitudes of these academic leaders while people are dying in the streets of Mexico and the streets all around America in Snellville, Georgia, Littleton, Colorado, San Fernando, California, Spokane, Washington, are people cut down by the drug trade. But you should see the buffet at the political science conference. You get tickets for three free drinks. Young graduate students hang on the middle-aged professor's every word. And the buffet is constantly replenished by underpaid immigrants imported to serve the professors who hate exploitation and who, in between mouthfuls of $10 a glass wine, say, There's no drug war in Mexico. There's no drug crisis in America, Luke. I wish someone could tell that to my brother. You see, he still thinks there's a drug crisis because he can't hear anyone anymore. He's dead and buried died from an overdose. My mother weeps over his grave. My children, oblivious to the sadness of it all, play tag over his buried casket. There's a small headstone. My niece and nephew cry at Christmas. But there's no drug crisis. There's no drug war. Indulge me, listeners. I want to tell you about love. I knew a woman once who I loved. Her hair was golden like a princess in a fairy tale. It would wisp and float in the currents of the air conditioner when you looked at her from the back of a classroom. Her figure was curved as the number eight itself. Her eyes pierced you in blue flames. Her name was Mary, and I loved her, and she never loved me. But it didn't matter. It made me happy to even be a part of a people that could produce her beauty. I would have done anything for her, and in my heart, I still care for her. And some of you just laughed a little when I told you that. But I don't care. You can laugh all you want. I went on a date with her once when I was in high school. I didn't even kiss her. I physically trembled when I held her close to me. That's true. I can feel the old pain now. I loved Mary, and most of you would have too, if you had seen her. I would have given anything to have her. But now you, listening to this show, can have her. All it will cost you is $50, but her face is scarred from the time she got beaten by a John in a cheap hotel room, the people outside the room ignoring her screams for help, and her face is pinched from the years of drug abuse, and her blue eyes are dull. And instead of inducing lust, they only induce pity, utter sadness, and shame. Shame that we live in a country where our beauty queens are transfigured into harlots. Disgust when we hear libertarians arguing that it's right and proper that Mary sells herself on the streets for money. After all, that's her choice, right? Wrong, libertarian. The essence of all political groupings, according to Machiavelli, Hobbes, Fichte, De Mastre, Moses and all the prophets, Augustine, Spinoza, Kant, Schmidt, and Luke Wolf. The essence of all political groupings is protection. We don't come together to trade. We come together for safety, and this so-called state didn't protect Mary, and libertarians sure as hell didn't protect her. And now any of you libertarians and anarchists, if it was your sister or your daughter who was selling herself to scum and getting her blonde hair dyed red with blood, would you still say it was all okay? You're a liar from hell if you say yes. Well, someone's daughter's out there on the streets of Atlanta and New York and San Diego and Moscow, Idaho tonight. Someone's beautiful sister is addicted to meth and selling herself tonight. But our political theorists and politicians say there is no drug war. There's no drug crisis. And surely these are all wise, smart men. They say we need more money to fund more social workers. So more of their friends can say there is no drug war. There's no drug crisis. We spent billions on clinics giving money to psychologists to sit and talk, and the crisis spreads. We spent billions on educational programs, and we spent billions on yammering experts. Still, the non-crisis and the non-war grows. Then there's the Vietnam War. 
58,000 Americans killed and the country was turned upside down. Millions of do-gutters flushing through the streets. Burn your draft card. You might have to work. Burn your bra. You might have to take care of your kids. But when 60,000 Mexicans are hacked to death and rolled in shag carpets and lobbed in the gutter, well, there's no protest. There's no problem. Those deaths are caused by our pleasure. Those brutal murders come from our fun. What's wrong with you, Luke? You want to stop our party? You want me to accept responsibility? Who the hell are you to say we're doing anything wrong? I'm not the one saying you did anything wrong. The 60,000 dead Mexicans and the hundreds of thousands of orphans are doing that for me. Because for me, a low-level, unheard-of academic from Hicksville, Georgia, their lives mean something. Their lives are worth fighting for. You know what's sad? Every time I point out something like this, I lose listeners. Many of you have your hand over that power button. You're ready to turn this podcast off. But the children of the dead victims in Mexico can't turn the damn podcast off. Their discomfort lasts forever. And they're more important than you listening to this show, so turn it the hell off if you want. Because for them, there is a drug crisis. Because for them, the war is growing. Because for them, there is no power button to turn the damn thing off. What's that old saying? Insanity is repeating the same thing over and over and expecting different results. In March 2010, Leslie Rodelfs, an employee of the U.S. consulate in Ciudad Juarez, was shot to death in her car along with her husband Arthur in broad daylight after leaving a children's party sponsored by the U.S. consul. The husband of another consular employee was killed and their two children seriously wounded on the same day in a separate drive-by shooting. Jamie Zapata, a special U.S. immigration and customs enforcement agent on assignment to the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City, suffered a similar fate in February 2011. Zapata and another ICE agent were returning to the capital after meeting with law enforcement officials when they were ambushed, end quote. On August 24, 2012, American governmental personnel were attacked in a running car chase worthy of a Hollywood epic. An armored U.S. Embassy SUV was attacked in the mountain south of Mexico City. Gunmen pursued the vehicle at high speeds, riddling it with bullets and wounding two of the occupants. The perpetrators of this assault are believed to be 12 members of Mexico's federal police. Although the exact reason for the attack has yet to be established, the most likely explanation is the incident is the latest case of penetration of Mexico's police forces by the cartels. Indeed, the New York Times reports that the embassy personnel in the SUV were CIA agents assisting the Mexican Navy in anti-drug efforts. The Mexican president later said that Navy personnel were affiliated with the cartels. Things in Mexico have not quieted down. For a few years, violent crime, while still astronomical by Western standards, was going down. In the last few years, it shot back up to the bloody levels of 2007 to 2012. For well over 13 years, Mexican and American authorities have been fighting the cartels and the epidemic of violence they foment. The overall result is dismal. I'll cite a few examples at random, and these are not the most extreme examples of conflict I could cite, but I want to give you an idea of the low-intensity war raging in Mexico. In 2016, a journalist reported on the conflict like this, quote, On the morning of January 2nd, a team of hired killers set off for the home of 33-year-old Gisela Mata, who only hours before had been sworn in as the first female mayor of Temixco, a sleepy spa town an hour from Mexico City. Miss Mata was still in her pajamas as the men approached her parents' upper-class house. She was in the bedroom, but most of her family was in the front room cooing over a newborn baby. 
As the family prepared a milk bottle, the assassin smashed the door open. Amid the commotion, Miss Mata came out of her bedroom and said firmly, I am Gisela. In front of her terrified family, the men beat Miss Mata and shot her several times, killing her, end quote. Such violence has plagued areas of Mexico during the decades-long bloodbath we know as the Mexican drug war. But Miss Mata's killing illuminates some worrying features of how this conflict is changing. Cartels now fight for political power itself. Hired killers, known as sicarios, have killed almost 100 mayors in Mexico in the last decade. For a decade, Mexican troops have worked with American agents to pursue kingpins in what is known as the cartel decapitation strategy. Flamboyant gangsters with nicknames like Tony Tormenta, The Engineer, and The Viceroy have been shot down or arrested. El Chapo has been detained twice in less than two years. Yet while these kingpins rot in prisons and graves, their assassins have formed their own organizations, which can be even more violent. For example, in 2009, American agents from the Drug Enforcement Administration got intelligence on one cartel leader named Mr. Beltran Leva. The DEA gave the address of Leva to Mexican Marines who promptly stormed in and killed Beltran and four of his accomplices. A senior DEA official told me they paid their informant a $5 million reward for the information that led to the takedown. Taxpayer money spent to try and win the drug war. But this huge capture, with an expenditure of millions of dollars, did not stop the violence. In fact, it increased. Without their leader, Sicarios, who had worked for the Beltran cartel, formed their own splinter groups, including Los Rojos and Warriors United. And they went on a killing rampage. The two cartels now fight over turf in Morolos and neighboring Guerrero State, leaving piles of bodies. Last year, Guerrero had the highest number of murders per capita in Mexico, and Morelos was fourth. These new cartels continue to traffic drugs, some switching from Colombian cocaine to Mexican heroin to feed an epidemic sweeping parts of America. But they have also used their armies of assassins to move into new endeavors. Rackets, extortion, oil theft, even wildcat iron mining. They are now muscling in on one of Mexico's most lucrative businesses of all, local politics. Instead of handing out bribes, they are making the mayors pay them. Politics is not just a way to help their criminal businesses. It is a business in and of itself. And as they take control of these politicians, the cartels transform themselves into an ominous shadow power, using the tools of the state to affect anyone who lives or works in its jurisdiction, end quote. Carl Schmidt predicted this would happen years ago. Indeed, for Schmidt, the protection-obedience principle ultimately helps us explain the crisis of the 20th century liberal state. Quote, If within the state there are organized parties capable of according their members more protection than the state, then the latter becomes at best an annex of such parties, and the individual citizen knows who he has to obey. End quote. We see Mexican citizens and even politicians obey the drug cartels because they offer more protection than the state. The same was true of Zimbabwean insurgents during the Rhodesian Bush War. The insurgents would kill those who disobeyed them, while the security forces would merely beat them up. Consequently, many tribesmen began to obey the insurgents rather than the security forces. We could also cite the large number of Afrikaners who turned on their own people during the Boer War. I could cite numerous case studies, but there's no need. We see both in concrete fact in the majority of real political philosophy, man will obey the one who protects him the most. With more than 2,000 mayors in Mexico, most of whom have little protection, the cartels have a big market of obedience to tap. 
In September 2014, one municipal police station worked with Warriors United Sicarios to kill or disappear more than 40 students in one of the most heinous crimes in modern Mexico. After federal police officers arrested the corrupt mayor, residents searched for family members who had disappeared under his rule. Some 130 bodies were dug up. These atrocities provoked thousands to march on Mexico's streets. Some protesters even set fire to the town hall. That was six years ago. Nothing's changed. Capitalism has learned to work with the cartels, too. Most corporate leaders are too timid to discuss this openly, but in 2015, Rob McEwen, the chairman and chief executive of the Canadian company McEwen Mining, dropped the ball and broke the silence after gangsters stole more than $8 million worth of gold from a mine in northwest Mexico. The cartels are active down here. Generally, we have a good relationship with them, McEwen told the Business News Network. If you want to go explore somewhere, you ask them and they tell you no. But then they say, come back in a couple of weeks. We finished what we were doing out there. I could fill this show with stories like these, endless lists of massacres of innocent students and women, widespread corruption of politicians, the rich and powerful making agreements with the cartel leaders, paying off the cartels in order to conduct business, a country with two authorities, cartel and government, a country at war, a continent intertwined in pain, a podcast that comes to an end. Will legalization of drugs in North America stop the war? The truth is as confusing as the human condition, a lesson in disagreement. No one really knows. Yiwan Griot doesn't think legalization will stop the war. He writes, quote, As cartels have entrenched themselves in Mexico's local politics, finding a solution to the drug war has gotten even tougher. Drug policy reform, meaning wider legalization of some drugs like marijuana and better addiction treatment to reduce the use of others like heroin, can help bleed the gangster financing. But with cartels now diversified and, and taking over the political establishment, it won't stop them. End quote. However, Jorge Castaneda believes legalization will end the worst excesses of the conflict. He writes this, quote, the United States will have to decriminalize or legalize drugs in order to reduce Mexico's drug cartel violence. It's the black market demand for drugs in America that has fed the Mexican cartels and has led to the horrific violence and deaths of thousands of innocent people. With the United States unwilling to provide the necessary support it would take to effectively fight the cartels, and Mexico unwilling to agree to the stipulations of such aid, the only real option is for both countries to decriminalize drugs to alleviate the power of the cartels and decrease the level of drug violence. There is no optimum solution to this conundrum. But the only conceivable alternative lies in a change in U.S. drug policy, not demand reduction or supply interdiction, but decriminalization, harm reduction, and adjusting laws to reality instead of uselessly attempting the opposite, end quote. What's the truth? That's up to you to decide. You're an adult. However, I want you to think about something. If you knew that every time you watched Netflix, there was a 1 in 250 chance that someone would be beaten, kidnapped, or robbed, would you still watch it? 
This is approximately the ratio of drug users to drug-related murders and overdoses every year. I normally wouldn't do this, but today I'm going to tell you the truth. You need to be the change you want to see. If you really believe Mexican lives matter, as I do, you have an obligation to quit illegal drugs. Marijuana should be legalized, I agree. Other drugs might need to be legalized too, but until they are, there are consequences to your pleasure. You are linked, even though you don't like it, even though you wish it weren't true, you are still linked to the dissolved bodies of El Pozolero, the murdered mother in Temixco, and the hundreds, perhaps thousands, of random civilians who are annually carved up and butchered in order to provide your high. And so I'll tell you what I always tell you, be the change you want to see. It really is that simple. It really is that easy. And you know, even if most people don't follow your moral actions, at least the people around you, I'm talking about your coworkers, your family, your girlfriend, all of them will know you stood for something. You believe in something. You put your money and your pleasure where your mouth is. I know it will make a difference because I've known enough alcoholics to see it make a difference in hundreds of lives. And I've seen the other side too, the weeping mothers, the silent graves, the bleak nothingness of death. If you enjoyed this show, I want you to share it on social media just because I think it's an important one. I really do. And until next time, as always, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. And I'll leave you with yet another sagacious maxim from Iggy Azalea, who our culture sits over the minds of our 13-year-old daughters. S. <laughs>